Well, tonight's lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian, Jr., as Stuart Bryan said, known to all as Punky. Punky Christian's service to his country as a decorated combat veteran of World War II and to his community as a business executive and civic leader is well known, and the regard with which he is held is pretty clear if you open that program you were given and look at that center spread. That says it all. Twice wounded in Normandy, Punky returned home and helped build post-war Virginia. His service to this institution spanned the most critical years of its history. As a trustee, board president, and honorary vice chairman, he gave leadership, energy, generosity, and his own special cantankerous brand of persistence. Some knowing chuckles going on around the room right now. All of these qualities left an indelible mark on the VHS. He co-chaired our first capital campaign, the Fifth Century Fund, which redefined the VHS as the center for Virginia history and served as the catalyst for two decades of growth and achievement. We celebrate Punky with this lecture named in his honor. We express our gratitude to his wife, Peggy, who's down here in the front, for sharing Punky, oh, and, and their children, I'm sorry, for sharing Punky with his extended family here at the VHS. And though he left us in February this year, after a long life full of accomplishment, we will always remember him with the greatest affection for what he meant to so many Virginians. It's appropriate that our speaker tonight was one of Punky's favorite historians. In fact, they served on the VHS board together many years ago. Daniel P. Jordan is a native Mississippian. He graduated from the University of Mississippi, where he was a scholarship athlete and president of the student body. He's also a former officer in the United States Army. He earned his Ph.D. at the University of Virginia and has written three books and more than 80 articles, essays, and reviews. He taught history at Virginia Commonwealth University here in Richmond, where he won the Teacher of the Year Award twice, so having clearly mastered that, he moved on to other things. I mentioned he served on the board of, the, of trustees here at the VHS, and some of you will no doubt remember that he gave our trustees lecture here in 1987. From 1985 to 2008, as you all know, he headed the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which owns and operates Monticello. Jefferson's Monticello has always been a world-class landmark, but it was under Dan's guidance that it reached its potential as a truly international center for educational and scholarly programs. He has received numerous awards for historic preservation, such as the Department of the Interior's highest award given to a private citizen and the Commonwealth of Virginia's award as Outstanding Virginian of 2006. He has served on many boards, including chairing the advisory board of the National Park Service. Other directorships include the Thomas Jefferson Commemorative Commission, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and the Gilder Lehrman Institute for American History. The historic sites he has touched as a member of various planning groups is a veritable who's who of iconic American locations, including the White House, Independence Hall, the United States Capitol, the Virginia State Capitol. Well, you get the picture. We're so pleased to have Dan back home at the VHS tonight, and we're especially delighted that his wife Lou could be with him as well. As you can see, 
Dan Jordan could speak on many, many topics, but tonight we're fortunate to have him talk to us on Jefferson in Perspective. Dan? Thank you, Paul, for those uh, kind words, and congratulations on your strong start and leadership uh, in the wake of my partner, uh, Charlie Bryan. Uh, Lou and I are delighted uh, to be back in Richmond in the good company of so many friends, and I'd like to ask her to stand up just a moment. Uh, thank you. I'm truly honored uh, to be giving the Stuart uh, G. Christian Trustee Lecture. And it's wonderful that Peggy is here tonight with other members of the family. Uh, Punky was a great friend for over uh, 30 uh, years. Uh, just seeing Punky walking toward me always brought a smile and a reflexive move of my hand uh, to my back pocket so my wallet would... <laughs> uh, Punky was truly uh, irresistible and irrepressible uh, when he wanted to ask you to do something, or when he was uh, raising uh, money, or when he just wanted to share a tall tale or two. Uh, we mourn his loss, but we cherish many warm uh, memories. My topic this evening is Jefferson in Perspective. Uh, the subtitle is Why Thomas Jefferson is More Important Now Than Ever. The key word is perspective. Uh, it's difficult uh, to define with precision, so I'll give an example. Uh, it's a true story. It happened at Monticello some 15 years ago during Garden Week, and there were two elder ladies who had come, had been in the house, were walking down uh, the garden path to Jefferson's uh, gravesite, and our gardener overheard the following conversation. Uh, the first elderly lady said in a very serious voice, you know, Thomas Jefferson was truly a great man. Uh, there was a pause, and the second elderly lady said in an equally serious voice, Yes, Thomas Jefferson was truly a great man. But don't ever forget, Elvis is still the king. <laughs> That's perspective. <clears throat> Uh, since his death in 1826, uh, Jefferson's image has been up and down. Uh, there's a wonderful friend who happens to be from Richmond who came up with a metaphor that I think describes it uh, quite well. Uh, this individual uh, who went to Yale was a Rhodes Scholar, is an eminent uh, architect on the international level, a great friend of Buford Scott, who I think is here tonight somewhere, is Jacqueline Taylor uh, Robertson. And Jack's a great speaker. And Jack often makes reference when he speaks about Jefferson to Jefferson's, uh, quote, surfboarding across American history, just sort of bouncing up and down and up and down. Uh, Merrill Peterson, uh, who was my mentor at the University of Virginia, uh, wrote a wonderful book on the Jeffersonian image in the American mind. We need to keep uh, in front of us uh, the fact <coughs> that the image changes uh, given uh, the circumstances and over time. But from the 1920s until the 1990s, Jefferson enjoyed great popularity. That's quite a run. Uh, he was popular with general audiences. He was popular with the scholars. There are many, many examples uh, of this. 
uh, Jefferson at high tide. Uh, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation uh, was created in 1923 for the purpose of opening Monticello to the public on a regular basis. Uh, since that moment in time, over 25 million individuals from all over the world have been, enjoyed uh, Mr. Jefferson's uh, mountaintop. Uh, it's private, it's nonprofit, uh, it has an educational mission as well, uh, but it has reached uh, that extraordinary uh, number. Uh, there were books published in the 20s and 30s, some by popular authors like Claude Bowers, uh, and then it was then during that period uh, that Dumas Malone, a fellow Mississippian, I might add, uh, started his magisterial multi-volume uh, series. It's still the definitive work on Thomas Jefferson and much deserved the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, in that era, Franklin Delano Roosevelt adopted uh, Thomas Jefferson. He saw that Jefferson was placed on the nickel in 1938. Uh, he was behind the creation of a Jefferson Memorial in Washington that was dedicated in 1943, and he co-opted the ideals of Thomas Jefferson uh, to advance the Allied cause uh, during uh, World War II itself. Uh, Mount Rushmore came along largely in the 1930s, and Jefferson joined that quartet of immortals. Uh, every poll in this period uh, from the 20s uh, to the early 90s uh, would show Jefferson as one of the outstanding Americans. Uh, polls by scholars ranking presidents always had Jefferson in the top uh, two or three, uh, and so it went. With the end of the Cold War, uh, there was another surge uh, in appreciation of Jefferson's uh, ideals uh, and his ideas. Uh, Lou and I have been privileged uh, in our days at Monticello over 24 years to have received 38 heads of state, past and present, uh, and uh, half a dozen or more came from the Eastern European bloc uh, after the wall uh, came down. And I'll take just one example. Uh, this was the first uh, democratically elected uh, president of one of these former Soviet uh, satellites. Uh, he knew he was coming to the United States. Uh, he asked the uh, Department of State if he could visit Monticello, not knowing his geography, and they said, yes, it could be arranged. We were called, and this individual uh, came on a Sunday afternoon in the fall. Uh, we, of course, were very curious as to why it was so important that he come to Monticello, and so we asked the question, and through a translator, uh, the response was extraordinary and, I think, uh, chilling, but also revealing. I said, why was it so important for you to come to Monticello? He said, because Thomas Jefferson is, and that's present tense, is the father of the democratic revolution in Europe. Uh, that Jefferson was well-read, uh, was well-known, and the ideals of Thomas Jefferson had fueled uh, the revolt uh, of the peoples of Eastern Europe against their Soviet uh, oppressors. Uh, that's an extraordinary uh, testimony, but we heard variations of that from the other uh, newly elected chief executives who came in that uh, period. So Jefferson was at high tide for his uh, ideals. Uh, the 250th anniversary of the birth of Jefferson took place in 1993, and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation sponsored 330 separate programs outside the United States, uh, plus a galaxy of events uh, within our uh, borders. Since the early 1990s, however, uh, there has been an erosion of Jefferson's uh, image uh, for at least four uh, reasons. Uh, first, uh, I would say, would be the wave of Federalist literature. Uh, there have been many great books written in the last 15 years or so on George Washington. And Paul made a reference to John Furling's uh, newest book, and the terms are a political genius and icon and the like. Uh, every book that's come out on uh, George Washington, who is deserving of all the praise we can give him, he was the indispensable man, uh, but they uh, salute uh, Washington often at the expense of his Secretary of State who broke with him, uh, namely Thomas Jefferson. Uh, 
Uh, there have been some exceptional books on Alexander Hamilton, uh, and you couldn't uh, find a greater contrast in certain fundamental values than between uh, Hamilton and uh, Jefferson. And then there is our friend from Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, John Adams. Uh, believe it or not, there were several good books on John Adams before our dear friend David McCullough uh, wrote his blockbuster and Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, which sold two million copies in hardback, and that's the all-time record for historical biography in this country. Uh, as you well know, uh, it led to an HBO series with Tom Hanks and Playtones. Uh, there was a premiere here in Richmond because David uh, and uh, Tom Hanks, I'm told by David, felt a great obligation to Virginia uh, where a lot of those scenes uh, were shot. Uh, the uh, series itself uh, was uh, gritty. Uh, it, it had an extraordinary uh, cast. Uh, it won, and this is amazing, uh, nominations uh, in the uh, Emmy Awards for 23 uh, categories. And 16 of the 23, as I recall, uh, won, in fact, uh, the uh, Emmys uh, themselves. The Golden Globes, the percentages are about the same, so it's much uh, celebrated. In fact, David told me that the HBO people said uh, that it was the most watched series in the history of HBO with the exception of the final episode of The Sopranos. <laughs> if you're looking at Thomas Jefferson through the lens of his adversaries, uh, it will diminish uh, his uh, standing. Uh, that's just a reality. Uh, so the second, uh, but the, so the first point is that this wave of Federalist uh, uh, literature has uh, uh, brought, in, uh, brought Jefferson down a notch or two. Now, a second reason for this uh, diminution in his stature uh, would be a new generation of historians uh, who were in graduate school in the 1960s and 1970s. Now, this is a very subjective opinion, uh, and I was one of those historians, so I think I uh, at least have uh, a right to, to extend an opinion. But in that era, the 60s and the 70s, uh, the nation was unsettled uh, by uh, Watergate, unsettled by Vietnam, unsettled by the Civil Rights Movement, and unsettled by uh, the terrible assassinations of the two Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King. Uh, many of the scholars who were trained in that era uh, tended to be, as they began to write, uh, anti-hero. And they tended to be, to at least a certain degree, very cynical uh, about America and American exceptionalism. And they were especially sensitive about race, about minorities, about America's flaws, America's inequities. And Jefferson became a convenient uh, target for those uh, feelings. A third reason that I think Jefferson uh, lost some ground uh, was a discovery, and I put that in quotation marks, uh, the discovery that Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. Uh, and that Thomas Jefferson, uh, I mean, abs absolutely it was known all along, but suddenly this became uh, larger than life in assessing uh, Jefferson in the context of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and they also uh, discovered, which was a matter of record, that Jefferson had certain racial uh, attitudes, uh, suspicion only, and he wrote about uh, race in notes on the state of Virginia in language that can only be described as raw, as graphic, uh, as highly offensive uh, to modern uh, sensibilities. And then, uh, not uh, long after, uh, a number of articles and books on, on the subject of Jefferson and race and Jefferson and slavery uh, came the uh, saga of Sally Hemings and, and another layer uh, of, uh, of this uh, anxiety and an often uh, this uh, criticism and further erosion. And then finally, it seems to me, in trying to account for Jefferson's uh, standing over the last 15 years or so, 
and the fact that the pedestal is not as secure maybe as it was going into the 90s uh, is the reality, uh, and I think we can all understand this, that uh, a person who is an idealistic visionary <coughs> and at the same time a hard-nosed practical politician uh, is on occasion uh, going to be uh, separated uh, by action from his uh, ideals. Uh, Jefferson is the ultimate American romantic, uh, but he lived in a world of harsh realities and uh, he played the political game uh, to win. Uh, there was, will always be a disparity between the actions and the ideals of people uh, like uh, Jefferson. Uh, but those, uh, that gap, that disparity uh, became a target uh, for uh, his critics. Uh, so it seems to me that we just have to acknowledge there's been a diminution of uh, standing uh, over the past 15 years or so. But let's uh, remember uh, our <coughs> key word, uh, which is uh, perspective meaning, in this case, context. And here are a few helpful reminders against the critics. Uh, number one, that Thomas Jefferson has always been controversial. Uh, just take a look at the election of 1800, and uh, you, you will not believe the level of uh, vitriolic uh, charges uh, made on both sides, uh, but there were uh, ministers of, of the Federalist Party in New England uh, who, uh, proclaimed from the pulpit that if Jefferson were elected uh, that the Constitution and all the Bibles in the United States would be gathered up and burned uh, and on and on. Now some of it's kind of silly in retrospect but it was uh, reality uh, at the time. Uh, very very harsh politics in 1800. But in addition when Jefferson became a member of the first General Assembly of the Commonwealth of Virginia in uh, 1776 uh, under the new Constitution he came forward with a radical agenda that was unsettling uh, to the status quo. And just think about a couple of points. We could uh, speak uh, at length on it, but just a couple of select uh, points. Uh, number one, he wanted a separation of church and state uh, in what had been a colony where there was an established church and where you couldn't be legally married unless it was by an Anglican minister in which everybody was taxed to support uh, the church. Now. Uh, how radical a proposal was that? Number two, uh, in his bill for a more general diffusion of knowledge, he wanted public education from kindergarten all the way uh, through a great uh, state uh, university. Public education. At a time when education was reserved uh, for the wealthy, uh, the children of the wealthy, uh, for those that uh, could go to the College of William & Mary, as of course Jefferson did, uh, and at the College of William & Mary, uh, there was a dogma because they were training ministers, essentially. Uh, but he wanted public education, uh, which was a leveling idea, a radical uh, idea. Uh, he wanted uh, rotation in office, uh, and, and on and on. Uh, this, uh, he was a troublemaker uh, against the status quo in Virginia and elsewhere, and he was highly criticized for it uh, and incredibly uh, controversial. So he's always been controversial. Uh, the second reminder is that Jefferson has outlived all of his critics. <laughs> and that's always consoling. The third reminder is that Jefferson left the paper trail of all paper trails. 
Now, in Monticello at our Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies, we have a magnificent Jefferson Library, and we have an editorial wing, and we have 10 scholars there who don't do anything but edit the papers of Thomas Jefferson in the retirement years of 1809 to 1826. Now, we published five books so far with Princeton University Press. It's the highest level of scholarship. In the documents that we are publishing, uh, Jefferson corresponded with the great names of his day, not just in politics, but in science and in culture and the like. And only 20% of the letters we are publishing that came to Jefferson have ever been in print. And of the letters that Jefferson wrote himself, which we're editing very carefully and publishing, only a third have ever been in print. So there's a lot more that we don't know uh, about certain aspects of Jefferson than we have uh, assumed. Another uh, friendly uh, reminder, in fact two, and I'll summarize the sort of counterpoint here. We have to keep Jefferson in perspective, we have to keep him in context, and for the next reminder, I call upon another Richmonder uh, who had, I think, a brilliant insight. And it came from the Honorable John Charles Thomas, who was the youngest person ever appointed to the Virginia State Supreme Court, was the first African-American ever appointed to the Virginia State Supreme Court, I think the first African-American partner in Hunton Williams. <clears throat> John Charles has been on the Monticello board for a number of years. He's a Jefferson enthusiast. And John Charles summarizes a lot by saying, Thomas Jefferson was an imperfect man, as we all are. But Thomas Jefferson had some perfect ideas. Thomas Jefferson had some perfect ideas. And then finally, in terms of a context, Thomas Jefferson still lives. In fact, he towers here and around uh, the world. Thomas Jefferson is more important now than ever. What's the case? George Will, from one perspective, Ken Burns, from a very different perspective, have both called Thomas Jefferson the man of the millennium. And I think it's a laudable position, and I think you can defend it uh, with at least three compelling arguments. Why is Jefferson's legacy so important, so enduring? At least three cases can be made. Number one, uh, based on his statesmanship or public uh, service. Uh, number two, uh, based upon his mountaintop home, and number three, and above all, on his ideas and his ideals. Uh, first, his public career or statesmanship. It's astonishing to recall that he was in public life for 40 years, for 40 years. It's equally astonishing to recall that he held virtually every position that his generation had to offer, from being a member of the court of Albemarle uh, to being president of these United States for two uh, terms. He went up the ladder step by step. And it's finally equally astonishing when we recall that he makes a significant contribution at each step along the way. Uh, he, in these positions, uh, made contributions uh, that influenced for the better uh, the lives of every American every minute of every day. Uh, what about his statesmanship, his public uh, career? take just a couple of examples. Uh, consider first his epitaph. I think many of you know that he uh, predictably uh, wrote it. 
Uh, he did not uh, include that he had been president, vice president, secretary of state, uh, minister of France, governor of Virginia, and so forth. And he regarded those as gifts of the people to him. Instead, he wanted, as testimonials that he had lived, uh, listed three gifts that he had made in turn uh, to the people. The first is the Declaration of Independence. It's the basis of our political freedom and democratic principles. It has changed the world. It still has not only intellectual power, but strangely, uh, with many, many people, uh, an emotional message. I had occasion to meet with Norman Lear, the, the Hollywood producer, uh, who was a bombardier in World War II and he's very patriotic, and Norman Lear had an opportunity uh, seven or eight, uh, ten years ago to buy a copy of the Dunlap, uh, which was the uh, copy of the declaration that was printed uh, in Philadelphia uh, the night of July the 4th and the morning of July the 5th and then sent out across the country. And he went uh, to Sotheby's, uh, which was holding the auction, and he had access to the document. And as he read it, word by word, line by line, he began to cry uncontrollably because he realized that those words contained universal uh, truths. The second item on the tombstone there at the cemetery at Monticello is that Thomas Jefferson is the author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. Bernard Balin, uh, perhaps the most eminent scholar of his generation of the revolution uh, and the era that followed, a great Harvard uh, author, Bernard Balin calls that document the most important ever penned in America bar none. You can make the case as you look around the world today, as you look backward around the world and the millions and millions of people who have been uh, persecuted and tortured and killed for their religious beliefs, uh, how blessed we are uh, to live in, in a land where we can practice our religion uh, without fear of government uh, oppression. And then finally, he wanted to be remembered as the father of the University of Virginia, uh, which he founded on the basis and think of this uh, as a transcendent uh, commitment uh, to the highest ideals, founded on the basis of the illimitable freedom of the human mind, the illimitable freedom of the human mind, and that at a time when most colleges and universities existed to train ministers and to propagate uh, dogma. Or consider Thomas Jefferson as father of the American uh, West, uh, measured in terms of expansion. We think of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, we had uh, Senator Alan Simpson at Monticello not too many years ago. It was a formal dinner. He asked if he could make a toast. We said we'd be delighted. Uh, he stood, he lifted a glass, and he said, To Thomas Jefferson, thanks for Wyoming. <laughs> at the scratch of a pen, half a continent changed hands or the father of the American West in terms of exploration. And there were many, many uh, military uh, units that Jefferson sent out. The best known, of course, is uh, Lewis and Clark, uh, which was an extraordinary uh, road trip, uh, which uh, changed the face of our landscape in many, many ways. Uh, Steve Ambrose, who wrote Undaunted Courage, and, and incidentally, he was a great friend. He's, he's gone to his reward as well. Uh, but Simon and Schuster thought uh, that there was going to be a blockbuster that they would sell 25,000 copies. Uh, so that was the, the press run, sold a million. But Steve Ambrose calls Monticello in that story Mission Control. <laughs> Mission Control. 
Uh, we were honored uh, to host the kickoff of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial on a really warm uh, uh, morning in January of uh, uh, 2003. I don't know if any of you uh, survived without frostbite, but it was five degrees when dawn broke and it warmed up to about 18. Uh, but who cared? That was the spirit of the event, uh, um, I felt. Uh, we had a lot of scholars. We had all the scholars. We had Ken Burns uh, also, who did a film festival that week. Uh, we had um, 200 Native Americans from west of the Mississippi, and they were with us for a full week, and we put them in every classroom in central Virginia. And can you imagine the thrill of uh, being a fourth grader and a Mandan chieftain comes in to talk about uh, his culture and the like, and on and on. It was, it was just an extraordinary moment. But we had uh, one panel of, uh, of scholars uh, to meet with the press, and uh, one of the journalists asked quite correctly, uh, what is the official date for the beginning of the Lewis and Clark expedition? And uh, the people on the panel said, oh, well, gee, maybe it was when uh, Jefferson uh, asked Congress to appropriate the money. Uh, no, somebody said, no, 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 it was when he appointed uh, his secretary, Meriwether Lewis. No, 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 it was when Lewis decided that he was going to bring Clark into the act. Oh, no, no, it was when they recruited the troops. No, no, it was when they left St. Louis. So we had a, a nice little discussion going. And then finally, uh, a scholar, a historian from uh, the great state of Montana said, no, no, you're all wrong. I've studied this very closely. I can tell you the precise date. Uh, the beginning of Lewis and Clark, and that date is April the 13th, 1743, when Thomas Jefferson was born. <laughs> Father of the American West. Well, it's not a bad resume, but his enduring legacy runs all over the place. Among his lesser-known but significant contributions uh, are, and just follow the range here, Jefferson is the father of our American coinage system. He was the first director of the Mint. <laughs> He is the father of the scientific measurement of the weather. He is the father of America's wine industry. He is the father of America's forestry, forestry industry. This is uh, something you might not um, believe, but it's true that he's the father of America's historical archaeology. He's the first scientific archaeologist in America. He was the author of the United States Senate's Parliamentary uh, Manual. And incidentally, it's not in the manual. He wrote the manual because he was bored, uh, you know, presiding and listening to these long-winded speeches. And uh, it's not in the manual, but he had a great idea, and that is put a, a monster alarm clock in front of the chamber. And, and just to allocate, uh, you know, Mr. Brown, you've got 15 minutes and set the lock, and, and it goes off, and you have to sit down, and, uh, you know, Carlton Moffitt stands up or something. But, um, but the... But the basis of the parliamentary procedures of Congress um, came from Thomas uh, Jefferson. He's the father of NOAA, uh, which goes back to the Coastal Survey uh, in the early 1800s. And uh, this is something that will be better known uh, after last fall, uh, but is generally not known. He is the father of the United States Military Academy. It was established in 1802. Uh, Jefferson wrote very specific instructions in its mission statement and a Monticello uh, delegation uh, went uh, to the United States Military Academy last September for the dedication of the brand new library, which is named for Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson Hall. Um, and the case for Jefferson's influence on the United States Military Academy uh, will be known forever because every cadet uh, who goes in that library will see not only a portrait of Jefferson, a statue of Jefferson, but a replica of Jefferson's cabinet, his office or study, uh, which the Thomas Jefferson Foundation contributed uh, to the library uh, itself. 
Uh, so Jefferson was active in many, many areas on our collective behalf. Uh, and there's much more, and some of it gets really silly. Uh, the National Restaurant Association, National Restaurant Association, a few years ago named Thomas Jefferson the char a charter member of its Hall of Fame. <laughs> Runner's Magazine named him Fitness Man of the Year. Now, the image of Jefferson, you know, out there running on, uh, on the track, but uh, because he did believe in physical fitness, and he certainly, uh, well, a doctor told me in San Francisco after I gave a talk once, that John, Thomas Jefferson is the father of holistic medicine, because he saw all the component parts and tried to live uh, according to those principles. Uh, Southern Living Magazine uh, called him the founding father of food. And incidentally, in my household in Mississippi, uh, Southern Living uh, is up there, not next to the Bible, but it's probably right under the Bible. <laughs> and my mother, who's passed away, um, was not impressed that, that I was quoted in the New York Times. I was not impressed that I, uh, I've been on all the national uh, networks. I've been interviewed live, on and on. It cut no ice down there in Mississippi, but um, I was quoted in Southern Living. And I can see my mother going to her neighbors with the, you know, look, this is Dan. Dan is in Southern Living. <laughs> so it's a big deal that Jefferson was named the founding uh, father of food. Well, in short, uh, Jefferson's statesmanship uh, would make a strong case for his enduring uh, legacy. A second conspicuous legacy is uh, Monticello. It's a tangible, three-dimensional, living monument to his genius and his versatility. And Monticello, we must always remember, was saved for posterity uh, by a prominent Jewish family, uh, the Levies. And the Thomas Jefferson Foundation a few years ago, when I think Brent was chairman, commissioned a book to be written about the Levy stewardship. And we chose a member of the board of the Virginia Historical Society and a very distinguished member of the faculty in history at VCU, uh, Mel Urofsky, to write the book. And it was very, very well received. Monticello, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is the only home in America on the World Heritage List. And that's a compilation by the UN of sites anywhere on the globe that must be protected at all costs. Monticello is the only home in America on that list. Monticello was our nation's first national horticultural uh, landmark, uh, reflecting, of course, uh, a, a tribute to Jefferson's uh, interest in uh, gardening. Uh, most people find enduring magic in Monticello's setting. It's on a mountaintop, as all of you know, in the Blue Ridge country of Virginia, what can be more magnificent in the spring or the fall. Uh, Jefferson had many visitors. Uh, he was hospitable to a fault, uh, and often they would write him uh, these uh, very uh, complimentary letters about his prospect, about the views, about the visitors. And uh, Jefferson uh, acknowledged uh, that this was one of the uh, great attributes of the site, uh, but from time to time he would get a little tired of the repetitive uh, uh, compliment. So in this particular interest, uh, uh, example, uh, he got a letter and said, y your uh, views, Mr. Jefferson, are perfect. And he responded, and Jefferson doesn't have a great sense of humor, but he can rise to the occasion uh, from time to time. He responded by saying, thank you for your compliments about the visit, the hospitality, and as to your reference uh, that the vista uh, was perfect, uh, uh, let me say that if only an adjoining mountain in the viewshed, only an adjoining mountain had been a volcano, <laughs> if only a nearby county 
had been a lake, then the view would be perfect. <laughs> but I think we would say not bad. Uh, people find magic in the architecture, in the details, and in the uh, composite. Uh, not that Monticello was built overnight. Uh, Willard Scott, uh, the weatherman, on three different occasions, did the weather live uh, from uh, the mountaintop. And I think some of you uh, know that Willard Scott is, is a very uh, loyal Virginian. Uh, he went to American University, majored in philosophy. Uh, he's lived in Delaware Plain uh, most of his adult life. Uh, he's a genuinely good guy and a smart guy. <coughs> but during one of the breaks, he said, well, Dan, uh, by the way, how long did it take to build Monticello? I said, Willard, uh, believe this or not, it took 40 years of active construction. 40 years of active construction. And Willard Scott said, 40 years? I've got the same contractor. <laughs> Monticello has been called a do-it-yourselfer's paradise. <clears throat> Monticello is truly the autobiography of a Renaissance man, and Jefferson is sometimes called the American Leonardo. It's a window into his, his spacious mind and imagination. Uh, there are many quotes on the subject of Jefferson's genius and versatility. Uh, I'm guessing everyone in, in this audience uh, is aware of the dinner that President Kennedy hosted for the Nobel laureates and that Kennedy uh, made some remarks in the beginning. And we have seen a copy of that speech, by the way, and what he said and what the speechwriter wrote uh, were different because Kennedy had scribble in the margin uh, his own uh, quip that became so famous uh, that this was, uh, in essence, uh, the most extraordinary uh, collection of intellect and blah, 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 with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson uh, dined alone. Uh, and there's great truth to that insight. Now, William Faulkner at the time was a writer in residence at the University of Virginia. He was a Nobel laureate. He was invited to the dinner. He declined. And somebody asked him, because it seemed so unusual, uh, Mr. Faulkner, uh, you were invited to go to Washington with all the Nobel laureates, but you chose not to. Can you tell me why? He said, it was too far to go for supper. <laughs> Faulkner, incidentally, uh, and this is a paraphrase, had a great line about uh, how much he loved Virginians. Somebody said, well, how do you like it up there? He said, I love, I love Virginia, and I love Virginians. Because they're such big snobs, they leave me alone. <laughs> but Jefferson's versatility. We like to say at Monticello that he had an interest in everything from A to Z, from architecture to zucchini. And that's literally correct. Uh, a French nobleman came to the mountaintop in 1782 to visit. Uh, later wrote the following, let me describe to you an American who, without ever having quitted his own country, is a musician, a draftsman, a surveyor, an astronomer, a natural philosopher, a jurist, a statesman. No object has escaped Mr. Jefferson, and it seemed indeed as though ever since his youth he had placed his mind, like his house, on a lofty height whence he might contemplate the whole universe. Well, James Parton, an early historian uh, who wrote uh, in the uh, 1870s uh, that Jefferson uh, was uh, 
quote, a gentleman of 32 who could uh, wrote uh, uh, that particular segment of the book that Jefferson was 32. But he was a gentleman of 32 who could calculate an eclipse. He could survey an estate. He could tie an artery. He could plan an edifice, architect, of course. He could try a cause. He could break a horse. He could dance a minuet. And he could play the violin. Now, another uh, great friend of Lou's and mine, um, uh, friends are John and Renee Grisham, uh, the Mississippians and the, you know, the, the writer and all. And, and uh, John once uh, commented, said, you know, when Jefferson was 32, uh, he could calculate an eclipse. Uh, when I was 32, I saw the hale Bop comet, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> <coughs> well, Monticello is the mirror of the man, and that uh, mirror endures, inspires, and edifies. Well, the third and final uh, contribution of the historical Jefferson uh, would be his ideas and his ideals. Uh, this is Jefferson's most enduring universal legacy. It remains powerful and persistent uh, today, uh, perhaps more than ever. Uh, Gordon Wood, an eminent uh, historian, uh, now emeritus at Brown, in a book about the founders, uh, had, a, had a wonderful line, and he said as follows, uh, Thomas Jefferson first wrote and thought what we now all believe. Thomas Jefferson first wrote and thought what we now all believe. Uh, Jesse Jackson, who's a big Jefferson enthusiast, came to Monticello, uh, brought his children because he wanted his children to know about Jefferson. Jesse Jackson had never been to Monticello. Uh, we had a dawn uh, uh, tour so we wouldn't be distracted by the general public and so forth. Uh, and uh, Jesse Jackson was totally uh, captivated uh, room by room. But in about the third room, he took over the tour. <laughs> and it didn't make any difference what the history of it was. If, it was a, if a room had books in it, he wanted those kids to know that Jefferson read. And you could not be educated without reading. And you couldn't be a good citizen uh, without reading and so forth. But Jesse Jackson mentioned uh, along the way, Thomas Jefferson gave us the words. We had Andrew Young uh, speaking at July the 4th at Monticello not too long ago, and we had a wonderful uh, time to spend with Ambassador Young the night before, and we reminisced about his days with Martin Luther King, uh, and Andrew Young said, well, Martin Luther King knew his Jefferson. Martin Luther King told us he gave us the words. I could give you many examples, but take the Declaration of Independence. Everybody knows all men are created equal. Uh, they all know uh, about the inalienable rights of life, liberty, pursuit, and happiness, and so forth. But Jack Rakoff, who's a very distinguished uh, historian, political science, Pulitzer Prize winner at Stanford, says the most important lines in that document are other, and they are that government rests on the consent of the governed. Now think about writing that radical statement at a time when most countries were controlled by monarchies or by tyrannies. Government rests on the consent of the government. Uh, that government exists to serve the people and not the other way around. And on uh, and on. The Declaration became the American Creed. Abraham Lincoln said the axioms of Thomas Jefferson are those of a free and democratic people. And those axioms are timeless and they're without 
boundaries, and they are of enormous appeal uh, today around uh, the world. I mentioned the surge of newly elected uh, presidents from the Eastern Bloc, but I would mention about the same time, uh, this was in the early 90s, I was on a program uh, out west, uh, and one of the participants on the panel was a student who had been in Tiananmen Square uh, in 1989. We have these images, you know, those students out there, we have the image of the one student standing in front of a tank, we have the image of, uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty out of papier-mâché. Uh, Lou and I actually met the artist who was an American who happened to be uh, in uh, China, and his students made that uh, papier-mâché Statue of Liberty. But this particular dissident who got out uh, said the following. Thomas Jefferson gave us our marching orders. He'd been asked a thousand times, what were you doing in Tiananmen Square? Thomas Jefferson gave us our marching orders. Uh, those fundamental principles are universal. But Jefferson also expressed transcendent ideals about freedom of religion, we've mentioned, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, about freedom of the human mind, about public education as the only secure basis of a democratic society. Uh, and Jefferson said it was ludicrous to think that you could have a democracy uh, and have citizens who were ignorant. Public education. His ideals would include his abiding faith in the American people. His ideals would include his fundamental optimism about our country. I'm often asked, what's your favorite Jefferson quote? And with Thomas Jefferson, you've got a lot of choices. But my favorite Jefferson quote is, quote, the sky is always clear at Monticello. Now, that's not a weather forecast. <laughs> that's a statement of Jefferson's temperament. And he believed that about our country, and he believed that about our uh, people. Words can change the world. Jefferson gave words to ideals better than anyone in his time or our time. Ideals that from the very beginning have defined who we are as Americans uh, today and ideals that transcend uh, time and place. Uh, Jefferson is recognized for that contribution uh, widely. I'll give you just two quick examples. The National Archives uh, worked with the Gallup people to do a poll a couple of years ago, and the question was, what are the most important documents in American history? What are the most important documents in American history? 300,000 Americans participated. The most important single document in American history, according to that poll, was the Declaration of Independence. The second most important was the Constitution. The third most, the Bill of Rights. And the fourth, according to the poll, was the Louisiana Purchase Territory, which made us a transcontinental uh, nation. Now step back for a moment. Here we are at the Virginia Historical Society. Charlie redefined it as the Center for Virginia History. Think about our pride in the Commonwealth and reflect that of the four, two were written by Jefferson and two by Madison. It's a sweep for the Virginians. <laughs> now, the second example I'll give you uh, is from the pen of a very distinguished Harvard historian uh, who looked at the uh, Declaration of Independence 
and looked around the world from 1776 down to the present, and he found 203 other Declaration of Independence modeled after what Thomas Jefferson wrote. It's an aspirational document. Uh, in many cases, the Declaration of Independence of a particular uh, small country or republic or a section of a country uh, failed. But the aspirations of Jefferson are the aspirations of people all over uh, the world. In short, uh, the historical Jefferson remains of enduring importance uh, for his statesmanship, uh, for his mountaintop home, and above all, for his ideas and his ideals. So I conclude by saying uh, simply, John Adams, eat your heart out. <laughs> Thank you.